Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Megan Messerly talks with Dr. Jake Keeperman, an ICU doctor at renowned hospital in Reno, about what it's like in the ICU and one of the hospitals most affected by the pandemic in the state. Afterwards, we get to meet two freshman legislators for the upcoming 2021 session, Cecilia Gonzalez and Natha Anderson. There are 16 new legislators this session, and every week we'll introduce you to two more. Then assistant editor and mother of interns Michelle Rundells introduces you listeners to two of our newest interns, Janelle Calderon and Sean Golanka. You'll get to meet a lot of new people on this episode of the podcast. And at the end of the show, Megan Messerly returns to talk about coronavirus numbers and news in our weekly COVID update. Jake Keeperman is a critical care doctor in the ICU at renowned regional medical center in Reno. In November, he tweeted a photo of himself in the alternate care site in Renown set up in its parking garage to handle the increased patient volume amid a fall COVID surge. One Twitter user commented that the parking garage facility was fake and a scam, which was later retweeted by President Donald Trump. Dr. Keeperman has been on the front lines of the pandemic along with his colleagues at the hospital, where the last thing they wanted to do was convert a parking garage into additional hospital space. Dr. Keeperman talked with our own Megan Messerly about COVID, how it's causing people to fall seriously ill, what it's like working in the ICU right now, and the vaccine. So thank you so much for joining us here to, today, Dr. Keeperman. We're really excited to, to talk to you and have you on the Indie Matters podcast. I was hoping we could start off just talking a little bit about uh, his life, but I'm wondering if you could kind of walk our listeners through when someone comes in the hospital with COVID, what kind of treatment are they going to? And then at the point where they're in the ICU, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like for folks? Yeah, absolutely. Patients are having a variety of presentations, but often patients initially arrive to the hospital, require a few liters of supplemental oxygen. They may not be ready to go home yet, although we have developed a very robust system where we can send people home directly from the emergency department on oxygen with remote monitoring because of our hospitals being so overwhelmed. But often patients are admitted. We are constantly monitoring their oxygen levels. We are having them turn themselves onto their belly. So they're face down or what we call proning, which helps distribute oxygen to other parts of the lung and can really help improve patient status. The number of medications we can give is quite limited with COVID. So we are giving steroids to people, most commonly dexamethasone. There are some different treatments that you hear about. One is called remdesivir. We have been giving that to patients that are requiring persistent oxygen therapy or high levels of oxygen. The data on it is a little bit mixed. There is no clear evidence of harm but also not significant evidence of improvement for most patients, although it does decrease some of the patients that need to go on to a ventilator. Throughout this time, we are often having to increase the amount of oxygen these patients are on. For those who pretty quickly stabilize on the oxygen or were able to go down on the oxygen, they are quickly discharged. It can often happen within 24 to 48 hours. But then for some people, they're requiring more and more oxygen, eventually after high flow oxygen and still having increased work of breathing, we are admitting them to the intensive care unit where we often 
place them on a mechanical ventilator. We're putting a breathing tube in. We are giving them sedating medications to make it so that they can tolerate the ventilator. Unfortunately, it's this population that is having an extremely poor outcomes for them, particularly the older population. Really, for those 70 or and older, we're talking about less than 5% survival rate if they're requiring a ventilator. And unfortunately, the majority of the people that are getting critically ill with this are developing the multi-system organ failure where their kidneys fail, then their liver fails. And really from that population, virtually no one is coming back. So really what we are working so hard to do is trying to prevent the multi-system organ failure for those. We can often continue to support the patient's lungs, but it's when so many different systems fail that it becomes a very large challenge. So really every day we try to decrease the amount of support the ventilator is giving and seeing how somebody does with that. Often early in the disease, again, people are not successful because we are escalating the ventilator support, but it's once we are able to be successful with what we call weaning trials of the ventilator that we slowly ensure that the patient is becoming stronger and stronger and are able to remove the ventilator so that they can get back to functioning and having somewhat of a normal life. Unfortunately, we're still learning about some of the long-term effects of COVID, but people are having sometimes persistent fatigue, headaches, and other symptoms that we really don't understand why or how to treat. And again, things that we just continue to learn and that we will keep trying our best to, to work through. I wonder what sort of, you could sort of explain for our listeners what, what it's like being in the ICU right now. I know many of these patients, particularly with COVID, are sedated because they're, they're on ventilation. Like you mentioned, the, the, the visitor situation is completely different than it would be in non-pandemic times. Yeah, so ICUs are very foreign places to most people. And as healthcare providers, in particular, critical care healthcare provider, we take it for granted. And I don't even think about how foreign it looks. But essentially, you have patients, the majority of whom are on sedating medications, are hooked up to machines. There's constant beeping, suction sounds, air delivery sounds. And it is almost this very surreal environment where there is very little living going on. And in the best of times, we have moderate interaction with the patients, where meaningful interaction with the patients, because again, they're often sedated, but we try to keep families at the bedside. And luckily, we are often able to save our patients and we see them get better and we see them wake up and are able to walk out of there. Right now is such a different time because so many of our patients are not making it. And we are not having the families that are able to tell us about the patient and so that we can really see them as a person. We are having the same beeping and incessant machine noises that we've had in the past. We just don't have the more uplifting times that we had often had. And that has been the, the most challenging. We also really like to, as healthcare providers, we spend lots of time encouraging one another, interacting, and trying to let off a little steam by joking around, playing around. And with the social distancing and the lack of us being able to interact with one another in the ways that we're used to, it's been a huge challenge. And often 
really demoralizing and sad. You see people now in the corner crying by themselves, where in the past, you would go up to one of your teammates and talk and you would maybe see them a little bit sad. You'd give them a hug. And now you can't do that. And it's awful. The rare times when a family comes in is when a patient is dying and it's their last few minutes. And I talk to the family about taking the risk of them being exposed so that they can hold their loved one's hand for the last few minutes of their lives. And it's just a sad, rough time. And while it's really sad and rough for the healthcare providers, it's worse for the patients. These patients have tubes and lines coming out of them. They are, many of them unfortunately have wasted away in bed as they've been sitting there for weeks or months on end as we've been doing everything we can to help them. But their bodies just can't overcome the, this terrible disease process. To pivot and talk a little bit about specifically the, the issue of hospital capacity, and, and we can talk a little bit about the, the alternate care site that, that Renown set up in, in the parking garage. But obviously, just looking at the case numbers in Washoe County, I mean, they were not good this fall. It looks like case numbers are improving a little bit, hospitalization numbers are, are improving a little bit just overall. But I'm wondering how things feel in the hospital right now. I mean, does it still feel dire right now? Is it Has it improved at all since a month or two ago? A week, week and a half. Our numbers have certainly gone down significantly in the hospital. And in fact, yesterday when I was walking through the halls and seeing many empty beds in the ICU, it was this feel of impending doom and this kind of creepy feeling that I was feeling and that I overheard many of the staff talking about. We know that we are just starting to see the ICU, the significant ICU patient population from Christmas now. And soon over the next week, week and a half, we'll start to see the New Year's, the the effects of the holidays and the gatherings that people had, even the small family gatherings that people thought were pretty innocuous. But unfortunately, with so many asymptomatic spreaders, people still get exposed during those times. So we are expecting a significant surge in the coming next few weeks. I'm also quite concerned as people start returning to schools, how that's going to spread among the teachers, the uh, students, and then to their families when they go back home. So I think we are, we are still in for a bumpy road coming. It, certainly things look better than they did a month ago. But I am also routinely getting phone calls to transfer patients from hospitals in Las Vegas, hospitals in Bakersfield, so throughout the San Joaquin Valley, Southern Nevada, because they don't have capacity and the closest available bed is up here in Reno. Right, right. I mean, it's important to note too, you're you're serving rural Nevada, like you said, you're taking patients from the south. I mean, at this point, it's everyone sort of looking for space. If there's a if there's a bed that's empty, they, they want to put them in there. I'm wondering too, I mean, thinking a little bit about you're talking about maybe people's decisions to, to gather with family over the holidays and how much of this pandemic really is tied to the the choices that we make as individuals, right? And the behaviors we choose to engage in and, and the risks we take and how a lot of this has has become political, unfortunately, right? The decision to wear a mask, the decision to gather, the decision to social distance, these have become political choices where maybe they should have been a, a scientific choice. And 
This touches a little bit on how you sort of came up into uh, the news. I don't think you uh, intended that when you, you when you <laughs> initially tweeted that. But um, for, for those who aren't aware, Dr. Huberman had tweeted a, a photo of himself in, in Renown's alternate care site in, in the parking garage and uh, just talking a little bit about treating COVID patients. And that, that tweet got t- tweeted by someone else who, who basically tried to say that, that it was fake. <laughs> Renown was not treating patients in the parking garage. That got retweeted by President Trump, and and you probably certainly did not anticipate any of that when you made the decision to tweet that. But I'm wondering, first of all, what, where, where you were when you found out that you would sort of been retweeted by by the president, essentially, and and what was going through your mind? I mean, as someone who again is, has lived this every day of this pandemic closer than most for the last nine or ten months. Yeah, so certainly not something that I expected or wanted, and something that now that's here, I'm really. I'm fortunate to be able to take opportunities like this and to share what it is really like and to see if there's any additional people that we can reach to try to understand the importance of wearing masks following some of the mitigation techniques to make it so that COVID goes away. Because you're right, COVID is not political. It doesn't care what political party you belong to. It doesn't care your beliefs, your sexuality, your religion, your race, ethnicity, or anything else. So we need to follow the science. We need to be careful. We need to work together to end this. And unfortunately, so I was at home when I found out that I had been retweeted by the president and I had finished a long week in the ICU and was trying to really recognize my colleagues who had been working so, so hard and that are often under-recognized. And the amount of despair among the staff at that time was so palpable. People were daily walking to their cars with their head down, but nothing could really cheer us up because all we were thinking about was our patients dying and the fear that we were going to get sick or we were going to get our family members sick if we brought this home. So when I had that retweeted, I was really in disbelief. I didn't believe it at first. I thought this must be a joke. Then I started getting more and more calls from friends and colleagues throughout the world informing me of this. And I thought, well, they can't all be working together to to trick me on this one and found it. And I started reading stuff. And again, it was just utter disbelief. How could anyone think that this is fake, think that this is unreal? Who would ever want to turn a parking garage into a hospital? That is never something somebody would elect to do. That is something that was forced out of necessity. And I really decided to try to develop a message and to send a, a sign that healthcare is not political. Healthcare is a right, not a privilege. And that we really need to address this crisis that is facing the world so that we can go on with, with our lives. We need to move past the us versus them mentality and move towards the how can all of our lives be better? And and that is really what I want to get out of this. And I want to offer my help and support as a frontline caregiver, helping politicians on any side of the aisle develop policy that will make it so we can provide the very best care to all of our population. 
thinking about the vaccine, this is our end game for the pandemic, right? Once we get a certain percentage of people vaccinated, it's just harder for the, the virus to spread because it can't find as many people to, to infect and get sick. I wonder if you could share with us your experience getting the vaccine, if you experienced any, any side effects? Absolutely. So I have received both uh, doses of the vaccine. I, I received the Pfizer vaccine. After I received my first dose, I had a sore arm for approximately 18 hours. That was it. I felt great. Other than that, I waited in anticipation greatly for the three weeks to come before I was able to receive my second vaccine, which I received on Friday. Again, I had a sore arm. This time it lasted for closer to 36 hours. Again, the only side effect that I had, I was very fortunate. Some people are having some fevers. Some people get some muscle aches. Those are normal. It is normal to get that after virtually any vaccination. That actually indicates that your body is having an immune response. So those are positive signs. It is something that can fairly easily, the symptoms can be treated with over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or acetaminophen. I highly recommend everyone to get the vaccine. Like I said, I was first in line for the first dose and the second dose. We need to get the vaccine until though we get a significant number of our population vaccinated and our community vaccinated, we need to continue to wear masks. We need to continue to wash our hands and avoid gathering because what we don't want to do is again, get the COVID during that time or spread it to other people. So we are not done yet but there is certainly light at the end of this extremely long and very dark tunnel. And we can get there together, but we need to stay strong for a bit longer. We need to continue to work together. We need to make sure that our public health officials, county health departments have the resources they need to get the vaccines out to the population. And we need to make sure that we continue providing education and support to those so that they can get the vaccine understand that people might get some symptoms and might have to miss a day or two of work and make sure that our employers understand that and that our population isn't afraid of the financial ramifications of that and that that doesn't prevent them from getting vaccinated. Well, thank you so much for for joining us on on today's podcast, Dr. Kieferman. We really appreciate you um, sharing your insights and and the work you do at, at Renown. It's it's a difficult time all around, but I know all Nevadans are grateful for the work you, that you do. So, thank you so much for joining us. That was Dr. Jacob Kieperman talking with our healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly. If you want to read more from Megan's interview with Dr. Kieperman, you can find a Q&A on our website. All right, and now we are going to meet two of the newest members of the Nevada legislature, freshman assemblywoman Natha Anderson and freshman assemblywoman Cecilia Gonzalez. We want to get to know the representatives a little bit better, know a few of their legislative priorities, and who they are as people. Make sure to listen for more profiles in the coming weeks on the podcast and on our site as well. Assemblywoman Anderson is a Democrat who represents District 30 in Sparks. She recently resigned from her position as the president of the Washoe Education Association Teachers Union, a position that often had her lobbying in Carson City in past sessions. We asked her how she ended up in politics. 
So I have a very boring life story. Second generation Nevadan, fourth generation educator. It's what we do, I guess, in my family. Mm-hmm. And I was not going to become a teacher no matter what because of every Saturday and Sunday being at those schools. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's no way. And then I uh, got a scholarship where I had to take English Education Leadership 101, which is a great class that I think everybody should have to take. But I had to volunteer in a classroom and I was hooked. So uh, my world is education and I decided to run because I've been, I mean, I've been involved in politics since I was a child. Mm-hmm. My first record actually, I feel like I'm like always telling the story, but oh well. My first record was uh, Pooh for President and I can sing <laughs> off key and everything. Like but... Minnie the Pooh for President. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Honey pot in every house is what he'll do for you. And it was the cutest thing because he'd go, I'm Tigger and I'm Pooh, and then it'd be Pooh and then it'd be all these other ones. It was just, it was a fun little, little record. I can vividly remember my dad getting mad at my sister and I because I would play it and then she would play Disco Duck. Mm-hmm. He'd be like, can you just listen to some music without animals just once? You know, but so yeah, so I've been involved in politics for a long time. It's mostly just been walking and, and canvassing for other candidates. Uh, Mary Gojak, which is a name from long ago, from the 80s, was probably one of the first people that I chose, was not chosen for me, and then I got a chance to walk for. But this time I decided, you know what? If I keep on asking people to run, I better put my name in there too. And what a year to do it. So, yeah, me. Assemblywoman Anderson's father, the late Bernie Anderson, was also a longtime member of the Nevada Assembly, well known for his role as the chairman of the Assembly Judiciary Committee. He was Assembly. He was in the Assembly, yep. He uh, waited until I grad, it was actually my senior year of high school that he uh, filed for office. And so, and he was elected. And I think he served for 20 years, I think it was. It was one of those things that it was halfway through is when we started getting the term limits thing. So yeah, he was an assemblyman as well. We asked Anderson what some of her priorities were during the session, and one topic she touched on was the death penalty when it comes to criminal justice reform. A biggie for me is the death penalty. My father was very much against it for a variety of reasons, and I share that that same item. So I'm very hopeful that this time we will be able to get it through and maybe not have the death penalty anymore. There are just so many questions as to the just the process that is utilized. Also, it's a money thing. We need to be realistic about that. Uh, so that's, that's a biggie for me is that the criminal justice reform has to do with the death penalty. I believe that we should no longer have it. And I'm not going to shy away from it. I realize, yes, the wild, wild west, and there are some people that have other beliefs, but I'm okay with that. We wanted to get to know Anderson a little bit better outside of politics. My degree's in English and history, uh, but it's always, I've always taught English. English, literature, AP English, you know, all those other things. And then also leadership. What's yeah. your favorite um, book to, to take to high school? Oh, for high school, I can't do just one. I would say in high school, senior English, my two favorites are The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun to teach that. So much fun. And then the other one, I went, oh, I do love my Hamlet, but I also love Fences by August Wilson. It's such a great play. It's just this beautiful play about people. And then let's see, American Lit. Oh, got to go with the poetry stuff. I mean, 
can you not go? Oh, so much fun when, when you start talking about like Langston Hughes theme for English B and especially like when he, you know, when he gets all mad at the end, not mad, defiant. And he says, you know, this poem is about me, but it's also about you. And it's like, this is real world. It's just so lovely. And then the crucible, so much fun. Moving from Natha Anderson to Cecilia Gonzalez, who is also a Democrat and represents Assembly District 16 in central Las Vegas along the Strip. So I'm a Las Vegas native. I was born in Southern California. However, I've lived in Las Vegas since I was like one years old. And when my family first migrated here from Thailand, a lot of them did migrate to Southern California. And then the other half of us kind of stayed in the Las Vegas area. I do come from an immigrant background. And so my mother migrated here from Thailand. And my father is a second generation uh, Mexican-American. I have a bachelor's in criminal justice and sociology I'm sorry, a minor in sociology, and then I have a master's in multicultural education with an emphasis in criminal justice. What I really am passionate about is our education and our criminal justice system and how those two systems work together to unfortunately push children into contact with the justice system. Assemblywoman Gonzalez said her biracial background has helped her relate with constituents, and she hopes to pave the way for more lawmakers from diverse backgrounds. So I am Latina and Asian, and so there's this narrative that Asian Americans don't care about our electoral politics and that they don't experience social issues, right? And so I got really passionate with organizing our community here. There's also a narrative that, you know, Asian Americans are typically conservative leaning, which is not necessarily inaccurate, but I also think that you diminish a lot of our identity when you just lump us into this monolithic group, right? Which we are not monolithic group. And so that really began the conversations of me running for office. When Heidi Swank decided not to run again, a lot of folks encouraged me to run. You know, I was very nervous as as a young person, um, very aware that I'm a very young person here. But, you know, I can't tell you how many times folks on the campaign trail you know, was able to connect with me, whether that was being a Latina or being Asian. In her doctoral studies, Gonzalez studied the school-to-prison pipeline, or policies in the education world that can drive people to the criminal justice system. The state of the criminal justice system is personal for her. Yeah, so I think for me, so obviously criminal justice for me is a um, huge passion area. I'm personally impacted by the justice system. My biological father has been incarcerated my entire life. I've you know, as young as five years old, can remember like going to and from like prison visitations, you know, as a five-year-old girl. And so that's had real long lasting impacts. And I think for me, one thing that I would like to see the legislature do is, you know, increase services for mental health and substance abuse. I think that the overall narrative is that people who deal with these are are not part of our society or are not deserving of of health and services and wellness. And they are. And so how do we make reintegration into society easier? You know, they've served their time, they've paid their debts, but forever will be followed, right, by this one horrible thing that they did. And I'm not saying that folks should not be held accountable for what they do because they absolutely should. However, we make it almost impossible for people to successfully integrate, right? And so we have this revolving door of people in and out of of jails and our prisons. And so how do we address the root causes of, you know, substance abuse, mental illness, affordable housing, right? And I think that I would really love to see the legislature tackle those issues and provide more support. Gonzalez is going to be a member of the Assembly Natural Resources Committee. She said spending time in nature is one of her favorite hobbies, but she's got plenty of other interests as well. 
camping. I'm a huge, I think I spent all summer hiking, especially because that was really like the only thing we could do. And I love to travel. I love diversity. I love culture. I love being able to travel and, and see what other communities and cultures do and the way that they live their everyday lives in different parts of the world. That has been very much limited due to COVID. I'm a huge book nerd, bookworm. And, and what else do I do? You know, I have a dog, I have a nine-year-old brother. Mm-hmm. So we're 20 years apart. And so spending time with him has also been very important to me as well. I am a Lukumi priestess. And so, you know, my spirituality is very important to me as well as our spiritual community. Thank you for joining us on the first iteration of Freshman Orientation. Next week, we will have two more new lawmakers. These interviews were originally done by Michelle Rendells, and the segment was edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to find out who your representatives are in the state, you can find them at ledge.state.nv.us slash who's my legislator. Okay, so we've arrived here at the fun segment of the podcast, and I know you listeners would all like to hear from two of the newest bylines that you've seen on the pages of the Indie, and that would be Janelle Calderon and Sean Galanka. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Hi, Michelle. Glad to be here, too, yeah. So Janelle is a recent graduate of UNLV and most recently finished an internship with the Las Vegas Review Journal. Sean comes to us from... Boston University, also a recent graduate, and they both just started with the Indie this month. So we're, we're super excited to get them started on stuff. Got a couple rapid fire questions that I wanted to go through with you. So we'll start, I guess, with Janelle on each of these and then move to Sean's. <laughs> Janelle, you're in Vegas. What is your favorite thing about Las Vegas? Oh, favorite thing about Las Vegas. Oh my goodness. Do the sunsets count? I know there's sunsets everywhere, but we the mountain range really just makes the sunsets insane every evening. Uh, Sean, what about you? Actually, funny, you said the mountain range. I think maybe just the fact that we're in a valley, I feel like it's something that I, I don't really experience going to a lot of other places, but I can like go out on the 215 and look all around me and there's just mountains everywhere. And I really love that. Close second is probably our Chinatown, though. So speaking of food and some of the best things about Las Vegas, what food are each of you the best at cooking, if any? Sean? I mean, I think I can make a pretty mean risotto, actually. Just something that I really like. So I've, I've practiced making it, but I think it's, it's decent. How about you, Janelle? The other night I made, I, I would say amazing, meatballs and pasta. Uh, with red marinara sauce. It just turned out so good. I was so proud of myself, but I've gotten more into baking also. So sugar cookies, banana bread, lemon squares. (laughs) Those are what I've been working into. Uh, Do you guys have any pets? Yes, I have two cats, Lolly and Money. Well, they're kind of technically my mom's cats, but we're a whole household. They're both gray, fluffy, lovable, funny cats. Love it. How about you, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I'm still living at home now. So my my family has a a chocolate lab named Piper. We've had her for a few years, got her from the Las Vegas Lab Rescue. So she's a little bit of a a spaz, but she's great. As most labs are, right? And then finally, for our viewers who are going to see your byline a lot, what 
What made you choose journalism as a major? You guys are both journalism majors. Sean first. I, I'm just really passionate about human storytelling, I guess. That's really why I got into journalism. I like being able to, you know, not only connect with people through journalism, but kind of present their stories to everyone else out there in the world. And I'm also pretty passionate about just like truth and factual information. And, you know, I, that's kind of a, a hot topic right now and something that I, I just think is, is important to, to maintain in the current state of the world. Well, I grew up watching the news after school. That was my go-to, uh, not cartoons after school. My grandpa would always read me the, the newspaper. And I guess I just grew up around news, even though throughout high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do until like the end of junior year when my English teacher, who was the journalism teacher at the time, she, she mentioned it to me and how you can also tell human stories and do photography with it because I was really into photography. Well, it's a hobby of mine. And it just it really showed me all the possibilities with like we do, like the radio, video, writing, photo, all of it. I wanted to do all of it. So I saw how broad it was and it really encouraged me to take a shot. Okay. And then I thought of one more question. What was like your favorite extracurricular activity or club that you might have done in high school or college? Sean? I mean, I'm going with college on this one, and I guess it strays a little bit from what we do here at the Indy, but I was a producer for a TV show at our, our college TV station. Um, we actually won a couple New England Emmys for it, and it was a, a, a sports talk show. So that was a lot of fun, and just being able to, to be in a producer role was, was something that was very different and, and exciting. What sports did you guys do? It was like a pro sports talk show. So we covered NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, international soccer, all that good stuff. To know what was your extracurricular? Well, in high school, I was an orchestra. I was an orchestra from sixth all the way to 12th grade. Um, I played the viola and I really, really liked it. I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't continue through college. I found more loves in my life. In college, I did photography, like I was mentioning. And that was my extracurricular, my outside area in my, in my major. The arts, I guess you would say. All right, well, I guess that'll wrap up our fun segment today. Hopefully we'll learn more about our two newest team members as uh, the months go on and through the semester. Keep looking out for their great work and follow them on Twitter. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So before we get into anything else, like we always do, we're going to start with the numbers. So noting that we're recording at around 9 a.m. on Friday, January 15th, what can you tell us about the data? Right. So as of right now, we're at 256,544 cases of COVID-19 that have been confirmed statewide across Nevada uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. You know, now we've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks about case trends, um, you know, looking at the data, we had this, you know, increase, we saw a tiny dip around the Thanksgiving holiday, which was associated with delays in testing, cases went up again after Thanksgiving, as we expected, sort of the result of Thanksgiving gatherings. 
Um, you know, we saw this dip again around the holidays, you know, not many people maybe wanting to go get tested, not as many labs being open, uh, processing samples. And then we've seen pretty much um, an increase in the case number statewide um, over the last, um, you know, few days to week or so. It's worth pointing out if folks um, look at our COVID-19 data page, they will see a dip uh, in the last couple of days, but that's largely caused by uh, the fact that Southern Nevada Health District, which reports data for Clark County, reported an unusually low number of cases. Uh, one day they've sort of been reporting 1,500, 2,000, you know, somewhere in that ballpark of cases a day. They reported uh, somewhere around 700 cases one day, which they said was um, due to a delay in lab reporting. Uh, so that number was artificially low, uh, not actually the result of, um, you know, sort of just organically less um, samples being reported back. So that's making those numbers look low right now. Um, state officials are expecting those numbers to continue to go up, especially as we get toward the end of the month. Um, you know, they've been looking at that data and saying, you know, what we're seeing right now in terms of increases is the result of, of these holiday gatherings that happened in uh, December. Um, you know, by the end of the month, we should be pretty much through those cases. And so, you know, at that point, if cases increase, it's, it's you know, probably due, due to other things. So they're keeping a close eye on that data. And then, you know, as we've talked about, you, you have cases and, and those go up and then eventually hospitalizations go up and eventually deaths go up. So they're keeping an eye on that, um, you know, to see how those trends carry through those other data points. So speaking of deaths, um, as of today, we're at uh, 3,665 65 deaths statewide uh, from COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we have been setting records day over day uh, for the last um, few days uh, as far as deaths go. That's the average number of deaths being reported each day over the last seven days. Um, we hit a new high yesterday. Uh, and again, this is expected based on what we saw with those case trends, right? Um, you know, those numbers were going up. So we expect the death numbers to be uh, going up, you know, there's this sort of four to five week lag um, from those case trends to the death trend. So keeping a close eye on those those death numbers as well, but again, sort of not wholly unexpected based on uh, based on the data that we've been seeing. Mm. And related to all this, uh, I'm curious about hospitalizations in particular, because we've seen this increase of cases uh, over time through the winter. And um, now it seems like that burden, like you said, is finally hitting hospitals. So what do we know about hospital capacity right now? How, how is that? Yeah, so it's been interesting uh, looking at the numbers. Um, technically, the, the numbers statewide are a little bit down from the peak. Um, so as of uh, as of the last day that data, the data was reported for, which is actually Wednesday, and they were recording this on Friday, there were 1,746 people hospitalized with COVID-19. At the peak in December, we were at 2,025 people hospitalized with COVID-19. Now, it's worth talking about that data um, a little bit and sort of why we're seeing that difference um, um, even though we've seen cases go up. And it's important to look at this data regionally. So actually, if you look at those, those case numbers, you'll see that the numbers are significantly down in Washoe County, which experienced a, a really significant spike um, in, in November. Uh, so they also experienced that same spike in their hospitalizations um, and their hospitalizations have been improving as well, which is why we're seeing that number go down statewide. Uh, but if you actually break that number down regionally, you can see the situation is still not great in Southern Nevada, where cases have generally been increasing. Um, it, it's interesting if you look at the the trends, you know, you see, um, you see Washoe has this really big spike in, in November, and it goes down and it's had a little bit of, you know, small, small increases, um, you know, post holidays, but but nothing like really what we're seeing in Clark County right now. And that's bearing out in some of this hospital data as well. 
Um, it's interesting too, you know, if you look at the capacity numbers, um, you know, Nevada's, you know, has a decent amount of capacity because hospitals are able to add extra beds, they're able to staff up to sort of meet some of that demand. You know, so so as a system, it has plenty of capacity. We, as of Wednesday, we're at um, 81% of staffed hospital beds were occupied statewide. 72% of ICU beds were occupied statewide. But part of the problem has been, um, you know, we've gotten reports from some of these individual facilities and some of the data that I've gotten shows that, you know, there are sort of a handful of these hospitals where, uh, you know, 100% or more uh, beds are, you know, they're being occupied um, in the ICU as well. There's, there's a handful of hospitals where, um, you know, their, their ICUs are either, you know, 100% or more or in that 90 to 100% range, which is really not where they want to be. And, you know, it's worth noting that, um, you, know, you know, hospitals don't exist in a bubble, right? A lot of hospitals are part of a hospital system. They can transfer patients out to their sister hospitals. Um, hospitals are sort of managed on a regional basis so they can transfer between themselves to sort of balance out some of this demand, which is why, you know, we generally look at this data on, you know, a regional, a regional basis. And that's, you know, generally more helpful than saying, okay, this situation's this way at this hospital and this way at this hospital, um, you know, but there have been some of these individual reports and, um, you know, concerns about, um, you know, hospitals sort of <laughs> being pushed to their push to their limits, which is why it's it's still worth keeping an eye on what's happening at, at individual facilities, especially as, you know, staff at those facilities are experiencing the strain, um, you know, and obviously just making sure we just want to make sure that this is the situation doesn't get worse in those hospitals. Mm. And so finally, what I'm curious about is vaccinations. Now we're about a month into this, the nation's vaccination program. And I think Nevada and most states nationwide have really struggled to, uh, efficiently distribute the vaccines that they've been allotted, and those vaccines have really trickled out from the federal government. So I'm curious then, uh, do we have a sense of how the state is reacting to those initial struggles? And from there, how many people are actually being vaccinated in Nevada now, now that we're uh, a couple weeks into this? Yeah, so it's a good question. And, and you kind of touched on, I think, the two main points there in your question, which is, um, you know, there are two issues happening here. One is the, you know, slow rollout of, of vaccine doses from the federal government. You know, we're expecting a change that the, you know, uh, incoming President uh, Joe Biden had announced um, that he, he was going to release all the second doses. If people had heard about this, the federal government was holding back the second doses, you know, to make sure there was enough supply. Um, you know, his incoming administration officials, they were saying, uh, you know, we have plenty of doses. It, the supply chain is not an issue. So there's no point to sort of hold these doses back when we could be putting them in people's arms right now. So that was a change he had planned to make, but actually the Trump administration um, decided to adopt that here in the, the last few days of that administration. So we're expecting to start seeing, um, you know, hopefully more doses coming to Nevada and other states across the country as a result of that policy change. So part of it is uh, an issue on the federal side and state officials have said part of the problem is they just don't have a lot of advanced warning about how many doses they're getting. You know, they, they find out their next weekly allocation, waiting to find out their next allocation. So they're kind of having to live on a week to week basis, which doesn't help them uh, sort of prepare for this, you know, mass rollout of, of vaccines. So that's been one of the challenges. The other challenge has been, you know, once the doses get to the state, putting them in people's arms. Um, you know, we saw, uh, for instance, you know, Washoe County uh, starting on Saturday, last Saturday had already started uh, vaccinating some of their K through 12 workers, 
while, you know, Clark County was saying, you know, we're still vaccinating our, our healthcare workforce. And that was one of the issues early on with the vaccine rollout in Clark County was um, finding all of these sort of smaller, um, you know, medical prof- providers, you know, just individual practices, um, doctors' offices. They, the, the sense was that they did a good job vaccinating hospital staff, but then finding all these sort of ancillary um, healthcare personnel that are spread out across the valley. That was more of a challenge. So um, as of right now, uh, Clark County through the Southern Nevada Health District is still vaccinating uh, the healthcare workforce and then the public safety workforce. Um, they have not yet started uh, vaccinating K through 12 personnel, though I know they're hoping to, that, to get to that group um, soon. Uh, one thing too that will help with the vaccine distribution in Clark County is they actually opened this week their first, uh, what they're calling like a mega vaccination site. And so this one is at um, Cashman Center uh, it allow, you know, allow a high volume of patients to come through, you know, we've seen this with some of these, you know, big testing sites. So now I think they're trying to adopt that model for, for vaccine, vaccine distribution. Uh, so the goal is that that will be able to, you know, significantly enhance, um, you know, Clark County's capacity to deliver the vaccine. The, the goal is that they'll have the capacity to deliver between 40,000 and 45,000 doses um, a week, which again, if you extrapolate the numbers out, that still means it's going to take a lot of time to get these shots in people's arms. Um, but at least that should um, help with the supply that is rolling in from the federal government right now. And so, you know, it's a lot of talk, but all this thing where we're at right now, um, as of today, you know, since vaccinations began in December, um, 76,844 people in Nevada have received their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, According to the CDC, 210,075 doses of the vaccine have been distributed to Nevada. Again, uh, state officials have attributed the the discrepancy between those two numbers, there's a pretty big difference there, uh, to the fact that uh, the the data reporting into the state's immunization database, which is called WebIZ, is a very onerous process. They say it takes about two minutes to enter in every record, which, you know, doesn't sound like much work until you think about, you know, 77,000 doses need to get entered. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of manual data entry. So that's one of the issues that they've reported. I know they're trying to get extra um, staff and volunteers to help out with some of that. Um, But they say that's why, you know, you see those numbers of of doses distributed so low that it's not, um, you know, maybe in part, we talked about the issue with Clark County, um, you know, maybe not getting vaccines in arms as fast as they would hope. But part of that also being an issue of, of data entry and maybe not all of those doses being entered into the system yet. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Megan Messerly, Dr. Jake Keeperman, Assemblywoman Cecile Gonzalez, Assemblywoman Natha Anderson, Michelle Rendells, Janelle Calderon, and Sean Galanka. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. And share it on social media. It really does help the show grow and reach more people. If you want to tell us what a great job we're doing, or if you have suggestions, you can either email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com, or you can fill out our podcast survey, which you can find as a comment on the Twitter and Facebook posts about this episode. People with Bodies, a local Reno band, wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. 
We had additional music this week from Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, and original music from our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.